Good afternoon. Last night I mentioned that the Buddha's teachings are sometimes described as having two wings, two wings to awakening, being wisdom and compassion. And although I talked quite a lot about all four of the four Brahmavihara, the four heart practices of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity that are included in this compassion wing. I didn't go into too much detail about what these four are. And that's partly because most of you on this session have heard me talk about them a lot. But for the benefit of those of you who might be less familiar with these practices, I'll give a little bit more context about them now. And then I'll offer a guided compassion practice instead of our relational meditation, which we'll pick up again from tomorrow afternoon. So first then, just to briefly and simply define what each of these four Brahmavihara qualities are. The first one, metta, is often translated as loving-kindness, or sometimes just simply kindness. And it's a quality of warmth, of goodwill, of basic friendliness or benevolence. And as you heard last night, it's the antidote to aversion. And when it's highly developed, it's unconditional, which means we don't just offer it to people we think deserve it, and we don't offer it in expectation of being recognized or rewarded in any way. So Bhikkhu Analio uses the analogy of the sun at noon that gently shines down on everyone, everything, everywhere, equally. And then compassion is what flowers naturally when this generalized goodwill turns towards life's difficulties. So whereas metta is a more of a almost generic kindness, compassion is specifically oriented to suffering, to stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, which makes it very relevant for our exploration of the Four Noble Truths and our training in this movement from clinging to release. So being able to meet our dukkha with compassion instead of reactivity or resistance is a very far, very powerful energy to support release. And it's an antidote to cruelty of all kinds. Appreciative joy or mudita is what flowers when the generalized goodwill of metta turns towards life's successes towards what's going well. So it's the capacity to appreciate and to share in the happiness and good fortune of other people as well as ourselves. So it has flavors of gratitude to it and it's an antidote to envy or jealousy. And then lastly, equanimity or upeka is a profound balance and steadiness 
that arises when we are able to open to the full spectrum of what life brings us without preference and without resistance with complete acceptance so last night I shared that uh, passage by Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs that illustrates the interrelationship between each of these Brahmavihara and which they presented as being different flavors or facets of love. And last night I also mentioned being on retreat at the Forest Refuge with Caroline Jones and Joseph Goldstein. And I was in a phase of exploring these Brahmavihara practices more intensively. And during that retreat, Joseph shared a well-known quote from the 19th century Tibetan meditation master, Shabkar, who says, The mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. I'll read that again. The mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And perhaps because at that time I'd been practicing the Brahmaviharas quite intensively, that image of the heart mind as a flawless piece of crystal really struck me. It so beautifully conveys how when the heart-mind is perfectly clear, it naturally, automatically responds in an appropriate way with kindness or compassion, appreciative joy or equanimity. Just as a crystal or a diamond naturally responds to light, sometimes the diamond flashes red, sometimes blue, sometimes yellow, and all of these colors are possible because of the diamond's innate purity. So one way of understanding how these four qualities are interrelated then is in terms of a diamond shape. So coming back to the diamond metaphor again, but this time thinking of it as a diagram, as a four-pointed shape. So if you're not familiar with this, you might like to open your eyes for a moment. So if you think of a diamond shape, broadly like that, at the bottom point of the diamond, we can locate metta, because it's really the foundation that the other three qualities emerge from. And when this foundation of metta turns towards difficulty or suffering, it naturally flowers as compassion. So in terms of the diamond, compassion is at one of the side points of this shape. And compassion is the wish for ourselves and others to be free from physical and emotional pain, to be free from all forms of suffering. So compassion is on one of the side points. And then in the same way, when this foundation of metta turns towards what's going well, towards happiness, it naturally flowers as appreciative joy or mudita. So mudita is on the opposite side point of the diamond from compassion. 
And it's the ability to feel happiness for another's happiness, to take delight in it and to feel glad. So then when compassion and appreciative joy are completely in balance, they come together at the top of the diamond and it flowers as equanimity. Equanimity is the heart mind that's totally at ease without any trace of wanting or any trace of not wanting, simply resting, poised, balanced. So equanimity is the pinnacle and it comes when we can open equally to life's 10,000 joys and its 10,000 sorrows. So this diamond diagram that I just laid out is just one way of seeing how these four practices are interrelated. There are probably many different ways that we could arrange them. And in fact, sometimes people say that equanimity could be on the bottom because equanimity is what supports each of these states to be unconditional, to be boundless. But one way I like to use this diagram, this arrangement, is to see how the different Brahma-Vihara practices can balance each other out. So, for example, if the metta is starting to feel a bit dry or perhaps superficial, we might change to compassion practice for a while and that brings in more of the, the depth, you could say, and when we tune into this uh, suffering with an attitude of kindness, it can strengthen our sense of purpose and bring more depth to the matter. At other times, we might start to get bogged down by focusing too much on the suffering. We start to feel overwhelmed by the 10,000 sorrows. And then we might need to deliberately move to the other point of the diamond, and to look for the 10,000 joys, too. So then we're inclining the heart-mind towards joy, mudita, cultivating gratitude for what's going well in our own and others' lives. Sometimes, though, if we're doing mudita more intensively, it can at times shade into its what's known as its near enemy of elation, a kind of giddiness or maybe even attachment to what's pleasant. Then we might need to come to the apex of the diamond to shift to equanimity practice and consciously cultivate that balance or evenness of heart-mind. So equanimity is a useful antidote to any kind of imbalance and that's another reason that it sits at the top of that diamond arrangement because metaphorically it's the pinnacle of all of these qualities. So now hopefully I've defined the four Brahma-Vihara and you have a clearer sense of what they are and how they work together to support and strengthen a balanced heart-mind. I'd like to focus just a little more now on compassion, the heart's capacity to turn towards dukkha, stress, distress, suffering and meet it with kindness rather than reactivity because as I said earlier in this project of 
navigating the Four Noble Truths and understanding Dukkha more and more clearly, compassion is a very powerful resource in that understanding. And we're fortunate to have spent the last three and a half days developing refined mindfulness and the steadiness of samadhi, unification of mind, so that we have more chance with those resources to turn towards pain without losing balance, not falling into overwhelm, not shutting down into disconnect. So with these resources of mindfulness and samadhi, we can begin to uncover and release what gets in the way of compassion so that it can more fully blossom. Remembering that in fact kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity are the heart's natural state, its natural home, natural abiding place when we've cleared out the afflictive thoughts and emotions that obscure them. So how do we actually do compassion as a Brahma-Vihara practice? In the insight tradition that we're part of, it's usually done similar to metta, by silently reciting words or phrases that evoke this turning towards suffering with the wish to be free from it. And this last aspect is important because sometimes compassion is misunderstood as being simple empathy. In other words, the capacity to feel in to someone else's pain and sorrow as if it was our own. But in the Buddhist teachings, even as we may be feeling in and with and for another person, there's an underlying orientation to the relief of that suffering. And where possible, we do what we can to help ease or perhaps at times release that pain and it's this interplay of feeling with and imagining relief that helps protect us from empathy burnout or so-called compassion fatigue so the traditional compassion phrases usually acknowledge the suffering and include the wish for it to be released so one traditional one is simply May you be free from your suffering. May you be free from your suffering. And traditionally, unlike with metta practice, just one phrase is used. And this one phrase is repeated over and over in relation to different categories of beings who may be experiencing difficulties and challenges. And as we keep touching into that suffering, we release any reactivity in our own hearts and minds and keep orienting towards that aspiration of freedom from suffering. So in my own practice, at first I found it hard to get traction with using just one standard phrase. So I came up with some phrases of my own that have been helpful in my own practice. And I'll share them with you now just in the spirit of what I was saying earlier about giving yourself permission to be creative, to try different approaches. So the phrases I developed are, I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. 
May this pain release. May I know peace. I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. And we could shorten that even to aware, care, release, peace. And I came up with that set of phrases as a, way, as a way to help soften some of the difficulties that I was encountering in my own compassion practice. So the first two phrases are intended to help illuminate any resistance to being with the pain. And the second two phrases provide a reminder that we're orienting to moving beyond the pain. So the first phrase, I'm aware of this pain, is, is a kind of a test. And we just drop in that question and see, is it true? Is there a willingness to acknowledge it? And sometimes the answer might be a giant neon no. But even being able to see this is useful. Because unless I can recognize the resistance, I can't do anything about it. And depending on the intensity of the resistance, if it's super strong, then wisdom might discern that actually this is not the right time to be doing this practice. I might need to do something else for a while to soothe the heart and mind, bring it back to balance, and then come back to the compassion practice when there is more steadiness and more capacity. So the second phrase is likewise a kind of test. I care about this pain. And again, is that true? Do I care about it? Or do I just want it to go away? Again, if we meet strong resistance here, we want to approach this capacity to care very gently. We might bargain, make an agreement. Okay, I'll care about this pain for just the next 10 seconds. That's all. And again, I've actually done this in my practice at times. I've set a timer for 10 seconds because that felt like that was all I had the capacity to be with at that particular point. And then after 10 seconds, we deliberately turn our attention to something neutral or pleasant so that we don't get overwhelmed by the pain. And if we do this with mindfulness, it's actually a form of right or wise effort, one of the Noble Eightfold Path factors of balanced effort. So again, on the other hand, if we find a very clear lack of care about the pain, it might be a signal that it's not the right time. So we can literally or metaphorically bow out, return to mindfulness of breathing for a while, perhaps go and do some walking meditation, maybe have a cup of tea, or even take a nap. This is not cheating. The point is that we do whatever we choose to do, with as much awareness, consciousness, wisdom as possible. Because what we're trying to do here is gently expand our capacity to be with Dukkha. Trying to force ourselves out of our comfort zones is a subtle form of violence that's totally counterproductive. 
So if we do find ourselves in that terrain of forcing or pushing, then it's much better to take a strategic withdrawal and move away from the dukkha for a while, to whatever extent we can. And then when there's enough sati and samadhi again, gently turn towards it once more. And metaphorically, take another small bite and metaphorically digest or metabolize another small piece of the suffering. So we don't have to swallow the whole thing at once. The third phrase, may this pain release, is a reminder that compassion practice is not a kind of masochistic suffering for the sake of suffering. And while it's true that compassion is sometimes presented as the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain, as I said earlier, it's not just empathy. Because if all we're doing is feeling fully with another's pain, it can easily slide into the so-called near enemy of compassion, which is sorrow. And this is particularly where we need to make sure that compassion is supported by wisdom. Again, these two wings of awakening working together so that we can stay somewhat balanced and not fall into overwhelm. And this balance comes about through mindfulness, tuning in carefully to what's happening in the body and the heart-mind, and always noticing our relationship to our experience, moment to moment to moment. In some ways, then, I think of uh, mindfulness as a type of whole-body listening it's the invitation to settle back and receive experience. And when appropriate, to respond with wisdom rather than react out of habit. So the receptivity of compassion and mindfulness is not just passive. Out of that deep listening, we come to intuit a skillful response. So later in the Buddhist tradition, this link between listening and compassion became more explicit in the image of the archetype of Kuan Yin, or Avalokiteshvara, the embodiment of compassion. And Kuan Yin is sometimes known as she who hears the cries of the world. And in the Zen tradition, it said she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body which is quite a striking image. But she doesn't only listen. She's also poised and ready to do whatever is necessary to relieve suffering. So I often talk about compassion as a practice of listening to ourselves first, of tuning in and looking for an already existing mind state find whatever compassion might actually already be there, even if it's very, very faint. So it's not about trying to manufacture some kind of lofty emotion. And in my own compassion practice, this was a turning point when I realized that this is not about trying to conjure up compassion. It's about listening, attuning to what is already there. Because again, compassion is a natural state of the heart and mind when it's 
unobscured by the visiting afflictive states. So as a metaphor for this, I sometimes think of the Hubble telescope, which in my non-scientific understanding is a very powerful piece of technology and it's constantly searching the universe for the faintest signals of life. And in the same way, sometimes we need to tune that Hubble telescope into the deepest, darkest spaces of our hearts and see if we can recognize just a very slight pulse of warmth way, way, way in the background. And as our compassion antenna gets more sensitive, we can amplify that signal, bring it more directly into consciousness and let it fill more of the heart and the mind. And as it does, we're able to more easily taste at least moments of openness, ease and acceptance even amidst the pain or difficulty. So the fourth compassion phrase, may I know peace, reminds us of this possibility. And we might at times help ourselves in that direction by consciously imagining or visualizing ourselves living without whatever pain, stress, distress or suffering we're currently experiencing. So what might it feel like to truly know peace? We might visualize that and try to bring that potential peace into our being as vividly as possible, allowing it to penetrate more fully into our bodies and hearts and minds to get a very immediate felt sense of how the peace might be experienced. Okay, so hopefully that overview, those definitions, the relationships between them might give you a clearer context now to try some actual compassion practice. But in, in alignment with what I just said earlier about listening, this is an opportunity to listen to your own being and to sense into what's appropriate practice for you now. And if in this moment you tune in and recognize that this is not the right time to be orienting to compassion, then feel free to leave the session at this point. The meditation will be recorded, so you can always come back to it at a later time when it feels more appropriate. Okay, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.